what a week. If you're listening in real time with us, I commend you for doing anything but watching the news. It is, as always, a great honor to borrow your ears for 45 minutes or so. If you're listening to this a few weeks after, I'm recording this late in the evening on November 5th, two days after the presidential election, and we are still waiting for results. So, needless to say, I'm a little sleep-deprived. The show must go on, however, and I'm really excited for you to hear from our friend, Dr. Matt Resnicek, Associate Chair of the English Department and Associate Professor of Medical Humanities at Creighton University in Nebraska. More specifically for us here at the study, Matt is trained in Jesuit practice with a focus on liberation theology. With Matt's help, on today's show, we're covering Vieira, the fourth weekly Torah portion. We'll discuss how the binding of Isaac elucidates differences between liberal and orthodox textual interpretations in Judaism and Christianity, which yields a useful reminder that even within our own religions, there are many different ways to not only interpret texts, but to integrate those interpretations into our ethical systems and modes of living. We'll also touch on Sodom and Gomorrah, and in doing so trace some of the Torah's narrative lineage all the way back to Greek mythology, pointing us to some problematic power dynamics at play in both Torah and Greek mythology. So, this one is packed to the brim. Sometimes I feel out of my element when I'm moderating a conversation between the coolest rabbi I know and someone who's authored multiple books on topics like the European metropolis, Paris, and 19th century Irish women novelists, but that's what this is all about. As you'll come to see, there's a bit of hopping around that we'll do on the show. Sometimes we'll get a little ahead of ourselves, and sometimes we'll have to rewind a couple chapters to get a better sense of what's at play. But that's the whole purpose here, at least for me, to ask our friends and family to get a sense of what this whole Torah thing is all about. And to do so, sometimes we'll get into the nitty-gritty, and sometimes we'll fly at 10,000 feet. So... Thanks for joining. On to the show. Okay, so given that none of us have probably slept in the past few days, I want to start with a little bit of context from last week in discussing the Abraham story with Dan Kwan. In order to get a full sense of Abraham's journey that our previous Parsha, Lech Lecha, sets up, uh, we had, we'd skipped ahead a little to compare and contrast the lessons we might take from the beginning of Abraham's journey to the latter half. And we found that the idea of setting out on a journey and taking a leap of faith into the unknown can be an incredibly rewarding process, and in fact, a, a necessary one, if we ever hope to achieve well, you know, anything. But then Dan brought up the story that's known as the binding of Isaac, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his own son. And Abraham goes ahead to do so, only to be stopped at the last minute by God. And Rabbi Adam, you had helped frame this in a really constructive way, which was to say that we should be inspired to set out and take those leaps in our lives that may be into the unknown. That's how we accomplish our goals. However, it's important to remember to keep our eyes on the road. And 
that maybe the story of Abraham setting out to sacrifice his son is perhaps a warning, some guardrails that we shouldn't lose sight of our mission, whatever that may be. And it's my understanding that to some Christians, the binding story is really important because it serves to prefigure Christ's crucifixion and the resurrection. So what I'd love to do this week is go back to this story and with the help of a scholar of Christianity, discuss the differences in interpretation. In order to do so, Rabbi Adam, will you remind us what we covered last week in regards to the guardrail interpretation so that Matt has some context to bounce off of, as well as give us the story of Sodom and Gomorrah resulting in Lot's wife's fate because a woman turning into a pillar of salt is, is pretty wild to me. This week's Parsha, Vaera, is chock full of stories. When we start this Parsha, all we have is an old childless couple who's migrated from Mesopotamia to the Promised Land. And by the time the Parsha is over, um, they, well, Abraham at least, has had two children, um, one with Hagar, his wife's handmaiden, um, and a second one with his wife, Sarah. Um, And not only have they had these two children, but they've also lost these two children. Um, Ishmael, uh, Abraham's son with Hagar, is sent away into the desert. And Isaac, in the story that we're going to spend most of our time, I think, talking about, is brought up to a mountain bound there uh, in preparation for being a burnt offering um, at the uh, behest of God, only to have God step in at the last moment and tell Abraham to knock it off. Um, In between there, we also have the famous story of the city of Sodom, um, this city of sin that God comes down and tells Abraham that God is about to wipe out. And Abraham engages in this sort of Middle Eastern marketplace, this shook kind of back and forth on trying to save the city of Sodom by, um, by saying to God, how can you wipe out all of the people altogether, the good and the bad as one? Will you save it if I can find 50 righteous people in the city? And when God can't find 50, Abraham says, how about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Um, So there are family stories of a family being formed and a family being broken apart. And also this really incredible uh, moral encounter between God and Abraham over the fate of this, uh, this doomed city of Sodom. Um, and also all sorts of other details about things that, uh, that went on in Sodom um, involving Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his wife, um, and her two daughters, uh, their two daughters, and, uh, and they're fleeing from Sodom when, uh, when Lot's wife turns back and looks at the city and turns into a pillar of salt. Really, truly, this is a Parsha full of a lot of stories. There's going to be a lot to unpack in the short time that we have together. So for the binding of Isaac, there are many interpretations of this story. The one that stood out to me comes from our favorite Maimonides. uh, And this one's by way of philosopher Omri Bohm, who had a piece in the New York Times. And he sets up this argument by recapping Maimonides' 11 degrees of prophecy, whereby, and this is the cliff notes, but the 11th or the one that's closest to the truth is one in which a prophet sees an angel who addresses him in a vision, and Maimonides immediately uses the binding of Isaac as the example to make his point. Uh, In the Times piece, he says, 
Maimonides reads God's command to Abraham metaphorically, as standing for all too human temptation to follow the established law and the ethical political norm as if they were absolute decrees. Indeed, and this is the critical point, the pagan ritual of child sacrifice was the established ethical political norm in Abraham's world. And for Maimonides, the highest prophetic degree consisted in obeying the angel's cancellation of God's decree. And this is demanded not just by morality, but by faith. So putting aside the details of Maimonides' degrees of prophecy, which could be and probably should be its own podcast, I'm wondering if, in light of what Bohm and Maimonides wrote, might we instead read the story as a reminder to be critical of ethical political norms rather than as a meditation in favor of obedience to God, and that the highest form of obeying might be disobedience? So where the story begins... God addresses Abraham directly, telling Abraham to take his son, his favorite one, Isaac, and to take him up to Mount Moriah to offer him there as a sacrifice. And uh, when the message comes at the end of the story, Abraham, hold back your hand, don't touch the boy or do anything to him. It says not that God spoke to Abraham directly, but an angel spoke to Abraham. And, And that's been a a troubling thing for the commentators all along um, because they say, you know, if Abraham had the direct uh, voice of God at the beginning, what's he doing listening to an angel at the end? Isn't that a, a voice with an intermediary? And so various theories are put forward. Um, and uh, one that I've always been drawn to is the idea of the angel, not necessarily being a divine messenger, but more a sense of the better angels of our nature, that the angel is the voice inside of Abraham that says, um, this may be commanded by God, but it's morally unacceptable. Um, And so, you know, taking that reading, which is taking a liberty with the text, to be sure. um, But I think we all know what it feels like to have an external authority command us to do something and, and to hear a persistent voice in our own heads and hearts that says there's something very wrong with what I'm being asked to do. Um, and the question of whether we can tune into that voice or not. Um, so that's, uh, that, that, that's something I often think about when I think about who, who is that angel? Is that angel, the angel outside or is that angel, the angel inside? Yeah, I think, um, that internal versus external dynamic is really intriguing just in terms of especially thinking about the the role of institutions in that discourse or that that debate i often think about the the question of sacrifice in order to be a good follower a good citizen a good subject sacrifice and and obedience is often required until it isn't and um i love that that adam brought up the the better angels of our nature because it makes me think a lot about um the grammatical Im- impossibility of a phrase that we use a lot, uh, a more perfect union. Uh, perfection is itself like a state. One is either perfect or imperfect. There, is not, there are not degrees of perfection. And so to be more perfect is to be in a perpetual state of failure. And I think about this because I think about that kind of framework of failure because we are caught between these questions of knowing when it is right and when it is wrong to disobey. 
but that both remain deeply moral positions. From a, from a Christian, especially a Catholic perspective, right, if we read Jesus of Nazareth into the, the narrative of Abraham and Isaac, of course, Jesus of Nazareth would argue that there is a disobedience of some of the Old Testament laws, you know. Um, famously, the, the, the saying is to, I have re- replaced the laws with this, the greatest commandment is to love thy neighbor as thyself. And so there is an overturning a disobedience of of God's law in the New Testament in order to establish or reestablish a different moral framework. I, I, I'm uncomfortable with that in a couple of ways because I think it suggests, right, that the God of the Old Testament is immoral and unjust. But instead, I think it provides us a way of rereading morality and justice into the Old Testament in a way that can be really humane and humanizing. So I I come from a faith tradition that's rooted really in Latin American liberation theology, which is grounded in in third world Marxist anti-imperialist critiques of the West, uh, specifically John Sobrino and Gustavo Gutierrez. Um, And they argue that the narrative of the of the Judeo-Christian tradition beginning with God liber- with Yahweh liberating the, the enslaved peoples of Egypt is a preferential option for the, for the poor and the marginalized. So stepping in to protect the child from the father who has by all accounts the right to do and dispose of his child, uh, to do with and dispose of his child however he will, that God steps in and says, no, protect this vulnerable being is, I think, a more humane and, and compassionate way of rereading these narratives um, in a way that, that kind of reminds us of this long tradition of liberation. Is part of that uh, humanizing of the story empowering us or allowing us to fail? I think it's allowing us certainly to question power, right? Even when that power is cloaked in the divine, but also to recognize that like we are constantly bound to struggle with that question. Yeah, I mean, I think anything um, that wants to continue to grow and thrive over the course of time is dependent on a process of repeated breakings and restitchings back together, right? If something has been around for any period of time, it is been through a world of changing circumstances and changing moral consensuses. Um, And so the only way that it continues to exist is if it has the capacity to um, break and be reformed, to to be looked at in in new light and with new eyes. So, um, and that, I don't think that that sort of, rupture and restitching back together is necessarily disobedient to the spirit of a tradition. I think it is very much in the the spirit of a tradition if it comes from a place of love. Um, I think about that in the American context. Um, you know, we, we are not the same country that we were at our founding 250 um, years ago. 
and and that's for the good. And in order to continue um, in that quest for more perfect union, um, we need to recognize all of those places in which we find the brokenness and try again and again and again to uh, to to put it back together again in a in a in a better way. I think that that's true of the critique that Jesus offers of some of the traditions of the Hebrew Bible, saying that um, the time has come to rethink some of these traditions. And I'm not terribly threatened by that because the rabbis of the Talmud living at roughly the same time do the exact same thing. They look at the texts of the um, Hebrew Bible already a thousand years old to them and say the time has come to um, rethink about these in new ways. So that, that process of breaking and putting back together again, I think is, is part of everything of, uh, of any that that's existed for any period of time that wants to continue to last. Yeah. It leads to that question, right. Of a closed fixed interpretation versus a living breathing interpretation. And so when we, when we talk about a text and this is something I struggle with my students all the time, students want to figure out what the text means and what the author meant. Like they're solving for X or Y in algebra. That's not what, that's not what you do with a text. Um, especially a text of, of significant, like of cultural meaning and cultural significance. It speaks to you in different ways at different points. And so I have to imagine, you know, reading this narrative as a father hits differently than um, reading it as, as a child. That ability, I think, of a text to continue to find ways to speak to us in different moments and from different vantage points shows exactly what Adam was talking about. The fact that we ought not be threatened by these varieties and various modes of interpretation, but in fact, we ought to be empowered by them because they allow us to approach it from where we are in our own existence. No surprise that many of the um, founders of postmodernist literary theory were also Talmud scholars, right? That like... These are these are connected disciplines. The ability to read out from a piece of fiction, or the ability to read out from a sacred text, uh, and to find not just what the author originally intended, but what uh, the intersection is between that text and your living experience, um, are really parallel disciplines. It gets into this whole sort of. I mean, postmodernism is now such a bugbear. In, in contemporary American discourse because it suggests that nothing has any meaning and that's just a, a complete misreading of Derrida and and um, Saussure and whatever. It also, I think, speaks to a deep anxiety around the ambiguity of texts and meaning. Um, we, as a people, and, and obviously right now, like I am longing for the anxiety around the ambiguity of, of this week to come to an end. But as a people, we are not comfortable with, with ambiguity. We want fixity and surety. And oftentimes faith 
is asking you to sit with that ambiguity and that lack of fixity. Those sound like two um, parallel or similar takes on this. And that's exciting to hear. I guess I'm curious from both of your perspectives how the morals of this story, specifically with Abraham and God, uh, affect Judaism and Christianity's understandings uh, separately? Is there a, a difference of opinion here that sets us up on two different paths? Or is the basis of the story actually uh, uh, familiar to both? Matt, you were educated by and now you're an educator in a Jesuit institution and Jesuits are well known to be the sort of intellectual renegades of the Catholic Church. They get themselves into trouble um, quite often for that position. Of course, uh, the current Pope is the first Jesuit Pope. Even turns out the infallible Pope can get himself into trouble sometimes with the things that he says. Um, I'm wondering, you know, if you feel like you've got an ability to sort of contrast how somebody from the the Jesuit tradition um, versus maybe a more mainline Catholic or Christian perspective on this text might differ. Well, so yeah, let me again sort of say that the intellectual and religious tradition I grew up in was rooted in kind of liberation theology. And so that's going to shape my interpretation of this in terms of, of sparing the vulnerable, of God intervening on behalf of the vulnerable. But I think most often in Christianity, this is read as a compulsion or a narrative that compels obedience. If we obey God, God will intervene and correct the situation, sort of a blind obedience to God. That's certainly, I think, an uncomfortable reading in a lot of ways, because I think it suggests that faith goes back to that sort of algebraic, if X, then Y, you know, you stick your right foot in, stick your right foot out and do the hokey pokey and you're all saved. And um, in fact, I think the Jesuit tradition, going back to the fact that they were uh, suppressed by the church and, and broken up and all these rounded up in, in the 80s in Central America as part of liberation movements, certainly suggests that they would disagree with the, any reading of a text that, that demands blind obedience. And so I was talking to a colleague about this uh, who was raised, she is Jewish by her mother's grandmother, but was raised in a fundamentalist Christian tradition. And so had a kind of bipolar interpretation of this reading and, and was really um, sold on the blind obedience aspect as a fundamentalist Christian. And then when she took more classes in Jewish history and American Jewish literature, went back to the text to think about, no, like the obligation is to question and to recognize that God does not want blood sacrifices that this is done in other traditions. And we we are told not to do this. So there's a, I think the liberal Christian tradition views it as an intervention on the side of the powerless by the powerful. Mainline Christianity understands it as 
thou shalt obey. And, and certainly I think that aligns in a, lot of ten, in a lot of sense with the politics of those two different interpretations as well. And we certainly see the same thing in Jewish interpretation of this text, right? It has become very de rigueur for liberal Jewish communities to give the sermon about Abraham doesn't pass the test, Abraham fails the test. The test was, would Abraham fight back for his son um, the same way that he fought back for the people of Sodom? And this is a moment of Abraham's moral failing, right? That's a very common um, sermon to hear in a reformer conservative setting. In a more orthodox setting, this is the model of perfect and complete faith. This is held up in the Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur liturgy in particular um, as an example of the this is everything, God, that we were willing to lay down for you. We were even willing our, our first ancestor to lay down his son, um, so too we ask uh, in their merit um, for your forgiveness and pardon. That's that's all over the repentance liturgy of the High Holy Days. And in the medieval period, there was actually an interesting one-upmanship that took place among some uh, medieval rabbinic poets who said, all right, the church is saying that the story of Abraham and Isaac prefigures the story of God sacrificing his son, Jesus. But of course, um, Jesus is God. And so the sacrifice is only in their understanding, only in part because he just returns to be back um, together with the father. Whereas Abraham actually takes his mortal son and sacrifices him. And, and in the retelling of some of these poets, they actually put a different ending on the story um, in which Abraham doesn't hold back, but actually goes ahead and kills Isaac. And this is a way of of saying, you know, we we were willing to uh, to not hold back. You know, the 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 Christians say God didn't hold back his one son from the sacrifice. So too Abraham didn't hold back his son from sacrifice. So there there have been historically Jews who have approached this text not with the shudder of horror at how could a father do this to a son or how could a just God command this of a human being, but have looked at this and said, this is the model of full and complete faith and even sort of reveled in that and held that up as an example. So those those dual voices exist, I think, in both of our traditions. It is fascinating that this narrative so completely obviates a woman's perspective. Um, I was reading, there's a collection of poetry by contemporary Jewish poets who are all women. And one of them makes a, a point that like this, this narrative never would have happened if it had involved a woman, um, which I just think is an interesting point uh, to bring up. Yeah, the text goes out of its way, Hashkem Avraham Baboka, that Abraham gets up really early in the morning to leave with Isaac. Why does he get up so early in the morning? Presumably because if Sarah had known where they were going, she would have killed him. Um, Well, because he was, he was taking her son and this dynamic of fathers and sons and of um, intergenerational male violence sort of necessitates that the woman be left back in the tent. Matt, you're 
a scholar of many things, including opera and its relationship to the novel. Um, so you're likely familiar with the famous legend of Orpheus and Eurydice, which actually I realized this week predates the writing of the Torah, which has been portrayed in various operas six, six, since uh, 1600, I believe, and having been only the second opera in history, and most recently brought back to life in Anais Mitchell's Broadway smash hit Hades Town. Uh, in short, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar, the story tells of Eurydice, the dead wife of Orpheus, who tries to bring Eurydice back from the dead with his music. Uh, after infiltrating the underworld, Hades, Orpheus had to walk in front of Eurydice and not look back at her until both had escaped the underworld, otherwise he'd fail his mission. Orpheus kind of second guesses whether Eurydice is actually still behind him. He can't resist and turns behind him to check, but because they hadn't crossed the portal of Hades, she vanishes back into the underworld, an obviously devastating outcome. So in this Parsha, we have Lot's wife, after being given the commandment by the angels to flee Sodom and not look uh, behind her, turns back and turns into a pillar of salt. Uh, I guess I'm wondering what might we learn about this Parsha from Orpheus and Eurydice, and even about Orpheus and Eurydice from this Parsha, specifically concerning, I guess, weakness of the human spirit and obedience and redemption. So I'm going to start with, with the obvious, that in both instances, male disobedience results in the punishment of women. So there's, there's a lot going on with that that I think is, is worth kind of pulling apart. It's funny, obviously opera tends to look to the legend of Orpheus because it's about the power of music. Uh, music uh, moving the gods and the power of the arts to bring someone back from the dead. So the legend, of the, the legend is really powerful for that reason in, in opera, but it also encodes what becomes a really clear pattern throughout opera. I'm writing about this at the minute in terms of Bizet's opera Carmen. Um, again, some, somewhat inverted, but a woman who refuses to submit to masculine discipline and then has to be killed. And this happens again and again and again in opera from uh, Monteverdi's Orpheus all the way through Wagner and famous, famous operas. From a gender studies perspective, it is fascinating to me that the threat of discipline falls disproportionately on women. And I think that says a lot in terms about the construction of power and our, and our conception of authority in a lot of ways. For me, it ties to a large extent to Louis Althusser's um, important theory of ideology and the ideological state apparatus, which talks about the good subject versus the bad subject and the way that you achieve or the way you convince people to remain good subjects is the threat of violent expulsion from the community. So uh, excommunication, imprisonment, all these sorts of violent cuttings off. Um, is how you can you threaten people to remain good citizens. And Althusser argues that over the course of history, 
that disciplinary mechanism becomes lighter and less heavily felt, but no less powerful. In fact, more powerful because it is lighter and you're less aware of it. So, so I think about this a lot in terms of um, in London, you're on CCTV like every seven or eight seconds. And same with you know Hong Kong and Beijing, where they now use sort of facial recognition software to um, add to or subtract from your social credit. And so the, the ways that we can use these narratives to encode both the threat of disobedience and the reward of good behavior, I think is really fascinating. And I, and I don't know that that necessarily reduces them to sort of moralistic narratives, but oftentimes it actually, I think, reveals just the opposite, the power of authority to coerce behavior. And can we trace that actually back to Greek mythology, that it started there and then just continues on? I think it probably goes before Greek mythology. I think part of what the way we communicate about power has always been through narrative. Um, you know, the, the fact that we use fables to tell um, the boy who cried wolf or whatever, these narratives help us think about not only the type of behavior we want to see, but the punishment of behavior that we don't want to see. Matt, what is it about looking back, though? Right? Why is looking back something that the society would want to punish or, or discipline people, particularly people of perhaps a lower power threshold, women, um, from doing? I don't know. There's a really symbolic power in this backward glance. Maybe, maybe it comes down to the fact that looking back suggests alternative ways things could have gone. So not like a nostalgia, but an imagining otherwise, that if I had made a different choice back then, where would things be now? Hmm. What do you think? Well, I'll admit that I, I have never really given the Lot's wife story a whole lot of thought before uh, this conversation. Um, what's popping to mind is just the the contrast between how the story of Sodom begins and how it essentially ends. The story of Sodom ends, the last big moment of this story really is is Lot's wife looking back behind her and, and being reduced to, uh, to this lifeless thing um, for her disobedience. But the beginning of the story, as I mentioned in the intro, is Abraham bargaining with God on behalf of the city. Um, God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to wipe out this city. And Abraham's response back to God um, is, is not a humble one. Abraham's response back to God, you know, in English, um, the, the text, I think, reads something like, far be it from you to do such a thing, to sweep away the righteous together with the guilty. Um, the, the Hebrew is, is much harsher. Halilalacha means shame on you. Shame on you, God, for acting this way. You are supposed to be better than that. You're not supposed to treat innocent and guilty people uh, to alike. So Abraham is able to say to God face to face, shame on you. And Lot's wife merely looks back at the city 
and she loses her life for that. And and what a stark contrast between this powerful man in relationship with God and this nameless woman only identified through her husband, um, who even a glance in the wrong direction is fatal. Adam, do you think the term glance is both in some ways very casual, but there's also a sort of an intimacy about it, right? Like a glance can be both simple and and without significance, but it can also carry a sense of intimacy or sexuality. Is there, in the Hebrew, is there a specific translation that has semantic meaning kind of shaping our understanding of that verb um uh, i'm looking um no it just says she looked she looked from behind and 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 she looked behind her and and became this pillar of salt um yeah there are all of these biblical characters who it would be really nice to know just a little more detail than the author was willing to provide, right? Was she looking back in horror at the destruction of the city? Was she looking back in longing for her old life? Was she looking back in sympathy for her friends, presumably, who were left behind? What what, what was she doing that the text just doesn't tell us? Um and that's, of course, the frustrating thing about studying Bible is it's such a um, terse text, um, but it does give such wonderful openings for um, midrash making, for, for legend weaving. Um, I don't know if I've never encountered somebody who has written um, sort of the alternative story of Lot's wife. Uh, it's probably out there. Um, I haven't found it. Um, but how cool would it be to know what uh, what her story is? And and similarly, you know, when we talk about um, going back to the story of the binding of Isaac and the need to hide from Sarah what was happening, there are Midrashim, there are rabbinic legends about how Sarah reacts to the news of what her husband um, attempted to do. Um, but there's there's certainly more imagining that's worth uh, that's worth happening there. Say you know she is a character in the story, even a character who's left behind. What was she thinking about those three days when they were gone? Um, how did she receive them when they came back? What was Lot's wife like? Um, what was what was her her life like in Sodom? Just stories that we, we don't have an answer to, but it's a an invitation for conversations like this one. So there's there's your next book, Matt. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Wolf is right. Let me finish the the two I've got going at the moment. Which yeah, Matt Matt's kind of a beast. He just he publishes and publishes. At what point can you stop publishing, my friend? I <laughs> I am a little bit of a workaholic, um, which I talked to my therapist about enough. So. <laughs> <laughs> We, we should say that um, Matt and my wife consider each other um, 
siblings um, from different parents really grew up together and, and Matt has become a, a close and dear friend. Um, and so it's really a special treat to get to, to be in a conversation like this with you. Yeah. Um, Adam's wife gave me Ferris Bueller's day off because she was afraid I was too straight laced. <laughs> so <laughs> did it work? One of, one of her many contributions. <laughs> I, I don't know yet if it's worked. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, well, thank you so, so much for joining and helping take apart this Parsha and these stories um, that, uh, that, that kind of go all over the place. And I feel like we got to unpack some, some stories of disobedience, which was exciting. Um, but I really appreciate you being here and spending time with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks for letting me share these stories. The study is produced by Evan Scott Nicholas and me, Raviv Ullman. My co-host is Rabbi Adam Greenwald. Our guest today was Dr. Matt Resnicek. Artwork by Julia Pott. We are currently listening to the European Archive recording of Christoph Gluck's opera, Orfeo ed Eurydice. Okay, time for a nap. See you next week. <laughs>